0: Welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast, produced in partnership with Mental Health America of Wisconsin.
1: We are your co-hosts, Bridget and Terry. Each week, through intimate, candid conversations with guests, we explore different perspectives on and experiences of depression. We keep it real because the illness is real. We keep it hopeful because there truly is hope in spite of what depression tells you.
0: We are not experts or therapists. We're sisters and best friends who live with depression and have interviewed hundreds of others who do as well. By sharing stories of lived experiences, we expose depression for the lying bully it
1: is. Hi, Terry. Hello, Bridget. So if you're a regular listener, you may have noticed that we are not statistics people. It's just not how we learn or understand the world. When we hear hundreds of millions of people worldwide have experienced depression or the number of suicides a day broken down by age groups, we find it distressing, but also impersonal and sometimes overwhelming, like a report on the national deficit.
0: But today we are going to focus on some numbers about the critical time after inpatient treatment for patients with a history of suicide risk not because the actual numbers are important to know, but because of the shockingly increased risk that they document. This is critical to understand as we try to keep both ourselves and all those that we care about
1: safe and alive. We're quoting from a just-released report from the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention. Quote, In the month after patients leave inpatient psychiatric care, their suicide death rate, is 300 times higher in the first week and 200 times higher in the first month than the general populations. And their suicide risk remains high for up to three months after discharge. Did you know that? I knew it was higher, but not those numbers. I sure didn't know that. Yet it's still, it's so
0: human to want to believe that you're Children or partner or friends or selves are in a better and safer place after inpatient treatment. But that is just not something that we can assume. We need to be more, not less,
1: watchful and caring in the months after discharge. Today's guest is Becky Stoll. She worked on the team that put that document together, and we will link to it. Becky is the vice president for crisis and disaster management at Centerstone, a large community mental health center based in Tennessee. We found that research and perspective so important that we're devoting two episodes to it. So we start our discussion asking about those
2: numbers. While it's a startling and staggering situation and statistic, we also felt like it gave us really good intelligence to be able to uh, one acknowledge that it's an issue, but to figure out how we could do better. Since we know this is a re- you know really fragile time, you know just like if somebody was coming out of the hospital with a medical condition, and it was like you know you have a really high risk of infection in the first you know two weeks after you come out, then you could do stuff about that.
1: Why is post-hospitalization such a fragile and dangerous time?
2: i say, you know, I've been in mental health, gosh, for, you know, a couple of decades. And I think the sense back in the day was if you went into an inpatient psych hospital that you got fixed. And, you know, and the lengths of stay at that time were long, too, but I think it was somehow, you know, equated to a medical condition. You kind of go in the hospital and that gets fixed and that there really, you know, was no risk of a complication.
1: Are patients and their support systems, their families will say, made aware of that heightened risk?
2: Um, You know, probably not. To be honest, you know, I don't know that they're being told explicitly that. Uh, I wish they would be. And, you know, hopefully we can do a better job of letting um, individuals and their families know to be on the lookout for that. Right. And
1: don't feel that it was necessarily a failure of either the person to get better or the institution to make them better, but that this is part of a process that's now documented.
2: Right, I think that would help. I mean, I mean, I I think it takes some of the pressure off of the person and the family Mm -hmm. um, to go. Okay, I went and got care, but now I'm still not better, or I don't feel better. In fact, I feel worse. I mean, it just seems like it would take that pressure off to to make the whole situation and the and the folks not feel like the whole thing or the person. Failed. Right. Yeah, absolutely. We have to, this is an area where I'm like, we have to do better. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't seem that complicated. You don't need a lot of money. You don't need a lot of processes. This one to me is a pretty easy win. Um, just tell people, let them know what to do, you know, if if it comes up. So I, I think this one's, uh, there's lots of things that are difficult in this space, but I don't think that's one of them.
1: I agree. I could imagine myself being very reluctant to tell my family, oh, no, it's back and it's worse, you know, right. because it's, they've just paid or they've just been scared or, you know, they think, oh, good, you got you got fixed, so we don't have to worry about you
2: anymore. My guess would be that's probably why you sometimes see a lot of this is the person feels like, you know, I went in the hospital to get this condition fixed and it didn't work and to really feel dejected. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, it, it's, it's a, it's a sweet spot, I think, for us in the industry. Um, and I don't think it takes a lot of resource to leverage that. Um, we just have to do it, you know, and sometimes that takes time and, and systems of care. But hopefully we'll we'll find out it's a great thing to do and we can just pollinate it across the U.S. Yes. And, and see some change.
1: And not just systems of care, but actual care. You have to care.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: Right. Because when you brought up the possibility or the risk of infection or something, of course the medical staff is going to say this is a normal amount of swelling. This is a normal amount of pain. But if there's a fever, if there's... Oozing of something, you've got to talk to us because it means something's wrong and you need to get checked out again. So it's just shocking to me that when a life is on the line,
2: I think we have to do better and really alert people to we know statistically that in the in the you know first couple of weeks post discharge from an inpatient psych stay, your risk for suicide is high, incredible. I mean, and, and you know, give them the statistic. So you can kind of be on high alert for that. Instead of just you know, if anything comes up, um, but hey, we know a lot of people that come out get this infection. Uh, this is a site, you know. This is a risk, and just be aware of it. So when you do, so when you do have that situation, uh, it's not surprising. And that family and friends and the individual themselves can be cognizant of it and be on the lookout for it.
1: It's not nearly enough or even safe to just release someone from an ER visit or inpatient psychiatric facility with discharge papers and the directive to make or keep a follow-up appointment with a mental health professional.
2: Um, Often, we don't even ask people. I know this happens in our system all the time. Is One of the inpatient providers will call us with 10 discharges, and they just want 10 discharge appointments, and they don't ask people if those appointment times work for them. I said, it's like they go back and they're Oprah. You get an appointment, and you get an appointment, and you get an appointment. And they give them these appointments, and nobody asks them if they could go at that date and time. You know, I might have already just missed a week of work to be in the hospital, and you're asking me to come on Tuesday at 10 o'clock. I can't do that. So we see the show rates for post-hospital discharges are rough, you know, in a lot of times.
1: Becky describes the current typical path between in- and outpatient treatment as one made of Swiss cheese.
2: And it's really easy to fall through some of those holes. And I just think we have to, where we can, kind of patch some of those. We don't do a great job of transitioning folks from A to B and sometimes B back to A. We, it's That's on pretty, I think it's on kind of one of those bridges that You know it's bouncy and rocks back and forth there's Mm -hmm. a bridge but sometimes i don't think it's where it needs to be Uh, and i think we that's an an area we definitely could do better Mm
1: -hmm. it seems the whole hospitalization thing again i you know started this three years ago and and i had Uh no experience with being hospitalized in a psychiatric facility so what I have been told, it seems to be a pretty standard comment. You don't go to a hospital to get better. You go to a hospital to stay safe. And then when you find out it's more dangerous afterwards, uh, can be more dangerous afterwards, that sounds almost like a, yeah, don't go to a hospital uh, formula.
2: Yeah. This is a personal belief. I think there's mm-hmm. definitely people that need to be in a hospital, for sure. Is it the majority of folks that we see going into hospitals? No, absolutely not, I don't believe that. And I think it's, you hit it um, a lot of time times, if they're there, they're not gonna kill themselves and it's a safety issue, but the reasons they feel that way are often not addressed, I don't think, adequately. The other piece is making sure, I mean, what is the milieu when you're in that inpatient psych hospital? What are you getting? What kind of treatment, like Mm -hmm. treatment, and, you know, that word needs to be bold and italicized and underlined and in all caps. You know, what treatments are they getting? And
1: who's responsible for providing the treatments?
2: I mean, that's another kind of more upstream issue. Um, is a lot of clinicians who come out with behavioral health degrees don't get, you know, suicide prevention training in their programs. Some don't get any, and the ones that do get some, it it isn't near to the caliber it should be. Um, And so a lot of systems of care get these employees who they hire with their fresh, shiny diplomas, and they're ill-equipped to be able to to, to work with this population.
1: Even casual observers of mental health have probably noticed that once-hushed topics like depression, bipolar disorder, even suicide, are now being discussed as front-page news. Some of that's because celebrities from Oprah and Lady Gaga to Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are choosing mental health as a focus. And hopefully that increased attention along with many other efforts, will result in more awareness, understanding, and much-needed funding for this frustratingly slow-to-evolve field.
2: I think the field of suicide prevention is so, it's in its infancy might be too strong, maybe in its adolescence, is we, I mean, when we really took this on back in 2012, We were one of the largest behavioral health companies in the country. And we asked two suicide screening questions, and that was it. We had no comprehensive system of care. We kind of asked two screening questions. If you said yes, we probably called mobile crisis. Like we didn't do a good job at all, and I don't think we were odd. Uh, in that we weren't doing a good job. Um, So it's really been nice over the past, you know, four, five, six years to see suicide prevention start bubbling to the top. And I think it's, uh, people didn't know, and we don't, I mean, even now, we don't have a lot of research. So it's kind of like what works and what doesn't work. You know, we still don't know some of the, what works and what doesn't work. So I think it's been not in people's vision that, you know, this is something we should be doing.
1: Becky believes as the vision of suicide is clarified and prioritized, there will be some fundamental changes in how it's understood.
2: I think there also is a a belief that if we fix A... And A could be depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, substance abuse disorder, co occurring of any of those. If we fix A, suicidality just goes away. And that A causes that. And I think we're really starting to see, and I think some of the researchers are starting to flush out that suicide is really its own A.
1: That concept is new to me. I because I, you know, sort of live in the world of depression, I, I tend to associate the two.
2: Yeah. For sure. Yeah, I think they're cousins, um, sisters, um, but I think there's a real, real push for an understanding that it's, you know, that it's its own entity and it needs to be treated uh, and not treat depression and anxiety and all the other disorders and kind of cross your fingers and assume it's going to go away.
1: And not just treat thoughts of plans for or attempts at suicide, but make that treatment the system-wide priority.
2: If somebody's got suicide um, as an issue, we should treat that. Then we can get to the other stuff, um, because if people can't be kept alive or feel like they have a life worth living, all these other great, wonderful programs we have won't matter. You know, if you're not alive, you can't go get substance abuse treatment um or you know CBT for your depression or whatever you know someone is is um working through you know it almost it's almost the, the the very top of the of the of the pyramid and you have to attend to it so i think we're starting to see more of that kind of understanding um I, my suspicion is and you know a lot of people smarter than me who are in the science A suicide, you know, I think it'll end up in the DSM, I suspect, in the next edition, where it's its own standalone um, condition uh, and have its own standalone, you know, diagnostic code and um, be seen as just that, as as its own uh, entity. So
1: to return to Becky's earlier metaphor of a Swiss cheese path, not only are portions of the mental health care system riddled with holes, but the field in many ways is
2: just starting the long hike. So I think it's a, it's a field that's low learning and growing. Um, and what I kind of see as I'm out teaching all over the country uh, is, are this, is this kind of in the last couple of years of an aha, like shame on us, why, why have we not been doing this? So I think you are seeing this kind of marination, pollination across the country, but it's tough work and, and it's and it's complicated. Um, and they're almost at the at the at the beginning square of monopoly. You know, it's surprising how much we haven't done in this space, and that people really are kind of starting from scratch.
1: How
0: can it? This is twenty twenty. I mean, I super appreciate that Becky is examining a process that she's in and a part of. I think that is just something we all need to learn how to do, and being willing to see areas that are needing improvement and that her workplace is truly part of the solution and one of the best, but Swiss cheese. Yeah. I mean, what do you, what do you do with that? If, I mean, you're already super unresourced, so you're probably not navigating the holes of the Swiss cheese very well on your own, which means that your caretakers who again, you know, maybe under the illusion that everything's all fixed now are, it's such a setup. It's such a hard, hard path to navigate. It's hard. It's hard intrinsically, and now we find out the more we dig that the system really is deficient.
1: Time Magazine, um, which wrote an article about this topic, in, in, including an interview with Becky, used the word perverse. It said it's perverse to describe the fact that healthcare organizations don't already prioritize suicide care. So. You are not alone in your in your feelings. I also just want to clarify for people who don't know what DSM means, that it's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's sort of the Bible in the industry for diagnoses. So we are going to continue our conversation, because this is a heck of a place to end, uh, about best practice recommendations and some of the innovative and replicable efforts that Centerstone, where Becky works, um, is an industry leader in these efforts. So we will be talking about things, the importance of connection, uh, intentional care transition, risk assessment, and follow-ups, which is a huge thing. So hold on till next week and there's more information coming.
0: Okay, so I guess our takeaway from this piece is to really be acutely aware that post-inpatient treatment is a time of um, we need to be hyper-vigilant and yes. we need to be really um, paying attention, not not taking an exhale
1: and, and feeling like it's over. Right. That's my takeaway. Excellent. And more constructive takeaways next time, too, because we can't just be on high alert and code red. We have to uh, also know that the system itself is doing some things to help with that process.
0: And we'll link to the um, recent Time Magazine article in which Becky is quoted and that newly released report. Excellent.